The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Just a heads up before we get started. This episode contains descriptions of abuse. It may be hard to listen to. Last summer, I bought a book. I had to get it from a rare books distributor. I paid $113.86. I bought it because I thought it might help answer my question about the Drummond's head rights, those shares of the Osage Mineral Estate that's held in trust by the federal government. The book came in the mail a week or two later. It's a couple hundred pages, bound in a hardback linen cover. It smelled like dust. The cover was blue and tattered. Three different photos of one guy. In one, he's young, 20s maybe, dressed in a military uniform. Another, he's a kid, riding a horse in a cowboy hat. The biggest photo is a portrait of him, older. He's staring into the camera, holding a lit cigarette, a big ring on his finger. He's pale, round, dressed in a three-piece suit. The title, Ranching from the Front Seat of a Buick, The Life of Oklahoma's A.A. Jack Drummond. It's this telling of the booms and busts of early ranch days in Osage County, a biography of one of the three Drummond brothers who grew up here in the early 1900s. Almost everyone I talked to about headrights brought up the Drummonds, A local newspaper had published a list of non-Osage names who had them, but not how many they had. I thought maybe the book might give me a clue. I was also curious what a white man like Jack would have remembered about the reign of terror. A house blowing up, the FBI in town, murder all around him. But the details of this conspiracy are hardly mentioned at all. Just one sentence on page 64. The line, Bill Hale, a local rancher, had to sell his land because he was going to prison for conspiring to murder most of an Osage Indian family so their head rights would devolve to his nephew. That was it. That's all the book had to say about it. A casual mention of another rancher in town who, by the way, also happened to mastermind the most notorious murders from the time. There are pages dedicated to Jack Drummond going off to war, fighting a bunch of lawsuits over land, meeting his first wife, being scammed out of more than $90,000 on a trip to Chicago, paying for some local kids to go to college, loaning money to young ranchers who are about to go under, driving around Oklahoma in his Buick, checking on cattle. But something at the very beginning of the book jumped out to me. In the author's note, the author, his name was Terry Hammonds. He mentions he donated dozens of cassette tapes worth of interviews with Jack, along with a bunch of financial records, to the State Historical Society in Oklahoma City. It sounded like a gold mine. Maybe these tapes, these records, would tell me something about the Drummond's headrights and how they got them. 
So I reached out to the historical society. An archivist I spoke to ran a search. Nothing came up. No luck. But a few days later, I got an email. That archivist said after her search came back blank, she decided to keep looking. She spent hours, in her words, scrambling to find these tapes. She scoured the historical society's inventory, called around to other sites, and, to my surprise, yeah, gotta work again. She found the tapes and Jack's financial records. Somewhere I would have never thought to look. Up the road in a suburb called Edmond at the University of Central Oklahoma. I'll tell you, Terry, where money's involved, honor seems to fly out the window. Sure does. Sure does. And in families and, and with everyone else. These recordings. They're all the raw material that went into making that biography. Hours and hours of two guys sitting in a room talking about cattle mortgages, land financing, and the Drummond family. The secret of the success in the cattle business is finance. You have to know how to, to always pay those cattle. Like when I, I financed all this land, I, I kept my land in the... Terry and Jack started recording these in 1978. They talked every few months for the next couple years. You'll hear dogs bark in the background, a clock ticking, and occasionally the tape skips or stops, sometimes when things are just getting interesting. What you did was the government told you what they'd pay you for it, and you just took it. That's it. You didn't bother with any court or anything like that? No. Johns took his money and then he disappeared, right? Yeah. You didn't see him after that? Uh, You took that off and I'll tell you something. And honestly, at first, I was worried there was nothing here. But then I found this moment when Jack starts talking about a legal fight he got into with a man named George Smith in a bank he just calls The National. So uh, I had all this litigation with George Smith and the Osage, and uh, I fought the National, and I've sued them for this million dollars up there. So the National just hated me like hell. Basically, this was a fight between this rancher, George Smith, and Jack Drummond over land in Osage County. The banks got involved because both men had taken out such big loans that whoever lost the lawsuit would go bankrupt. Think of it as a high-stakes, highly leveraged turf war. And they called Bill Dameron and, and on the telephone and told him that I was a crooked son of a bitch and I was stealing his cattle. And they told him everything of, of, bad about me. I'm telling you all this because as he starts getting into the details of this dispute, he mentions... But I know Sam Borshin was a lawyer in, in uh, Tulsa and... He, he knew how expensive litigation was, and he said to me, how long can you keep up this litigation? I said, indefinitely. Well, he said, how can you do that indefinitely? And I said, well, I live with my mother, so I have free board and room and laundry. And I've got an Osage, half an Osage head ride, and that pays me enough money so that I can always get new cars and make my car payments so I make my car installments. And I said, uh, I, I've got to, and I said, oh, as a last resort, I... The tape ends right there, right after he mentions he has half an Osage head right. 
half a headright he's using to make car payments, half a headright that could float him during all these court battles. I later found out Jack had transferred most of his property into other people's names during this lawsuit, but this half a headright he held on to. Elsewhere in the tapes, he kind of brags to Terry Hammonds about it. I've got a half Osage head ride. That, did you know I had half yeah. Osage? And that pays me, uh, see, I gave that to Jim. I said that trust uh, pays insurance. Jim Drummond is Jack's son. He's in his 70s, still a practicing criminal defense attorney in Texas. I've spoken to him. Before I get to that conversation, though, I want to point out another moment in those tapes with Jack when he says flat out how he got that head right share. And the number actually ends up being a little more than a half. And you see, I bought a, I, I bought a, a half a head ride. Bought a fourth of a ride. I got the purchase of it from O.B. Pope. I said, so there it was. And I've been able to confirm this. Jack Drummond bought one half and one fourth of a headright from someone named Ovi Pope. And that half share, Jack later gave to his son. If anything, these tapes gave me more questions than answers. Who was Ovi Pope? How did he get headrights? And who has them today? This is In Trust. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I would like you to tell me about that uh, three weeks when you and O.V. Pope drove around Oklahoma signing up the 500 cattlemen for the Oklahoma Livestock Marketing Association. That's extremely interesting. And I, just know I heard Jack mention O.V. Pope's name again in the middle of a story he tells about trying to round up farmers and ranchers for a financial co-op. This is 1931, the Great Depression, the beginning of the Dust Bowl. Farmers and ranchers are facing yet another year of crop prices so low they can't stay afloat. They're overloaded with debt. Oklahoma families are starting to pack up their trucks and head west to California. This cooperative was supposed to help ranchers out, and Jack's job was to get people on board. I would sleep at night in the car, and O.V. Bolt would, dri- would drive me. And then when I'd get to these towns, I would, uh, I would get me a, one of the cowmen, one of the leading cowmen, and have him go with me to his friends, see. Mm-hmm. I, I had to have the support in, for each community, and it was hard going. It took me three weeks. I never took my clothes off for those three weeks. Those were a gruesome three weeks, the way Terry describes it in the book. It's August, hot. For nearly a month, Obie Pope and Jack Drummond are living out of a car, bumping along ranch roads, 
making a last-ditch effort to save the Oklahoma cattle business. The thing is, nowhere in these tapes does Jack say how Ovi Pope would have gotten ahead right, or why he sold part of it to Jack. When I started looking around for something, anything, about Ovi Pope, I kept running into dead ends. Compared to the Drummonds, this was a relatively obscure guy. No line in the local paper when he went out of town on business. No university buildings named after him. But even without any specifics on Ovi Pope, I could get transfer records from the National Archives, all the paperwork that got sent to what was then called the Office of Indian Affairs, everything they required before they would sign off on the sale of a headright to someone else. If the sale happened before 1965, it's in the public record, held in a warehouse in Fort Worth. It was legal to transfer a headright to a non-Osage person or group up until 1978. So there's a gap in the public records you can access on headrights. 13 years that are essentially a black box. But even though the records before 1965 are technically public, they aren't easy to access. You have to know the names of the individuals involved in order to ask one of the archive specialists to email the documents. If you want to search through them yourself, you have to get an appointment and a special researcher card and travel to Fort Worth. The folders I got back were bigger than I expected. It turns out there was a fair amount of bureaucracy involved in selling a headright. Each one's about a dozen pages. You had to write a formal application, get it notarized, have an oil and gas inspector weigh in on the purchase price. The whole thing had to be approved by the Assistant Secretary of Interior. According to those transfer records, Jack Drummond bought the one-half headright from O.V. Pope in 1925 for $20,050. And three years later, in 1928, he buys another one-fourth of a headright for $11,250. What's also in that paperwork is something missing in the tapes with Jack, how O.V. Pope got his headrights. He inherited them from his wife, an Osage woman named Namit Sehi. She died in 1924. I found something else on the Pope family, too. This time, it was in Oklahoma's court records. I found out that after Namit Sehi died, Ovi Pope's brother married her daughter, a daughter she had from a previous marriage, to an Osage man. Her name was Rhoda Wheeler Ridge, and she was trying to get a divorce. I brought all this, the transfer paperwork, and the introduction to the divorce case to Tara Dameron at the White Hair Memorial, who told me about that list of non-Osage headway holders. We started with the transfer paperwork. So this is dated May 19th, 1928 to Mr. A.B. Ludwig, County Clerk, Basque, Oklahoma. It says, Dear Sir, there is enclosed for recording Assignment from O.V. Pope to Alfred A. Drummond, which was approved by the Assistant Secretary of the Interior on May 10th, 1928, together with cashier's check. I wanted to hear Tara's thoughts on this because she spends all day immersed in these kinds of records. She would know better what we were looking at. So, 
Obi Pope was a white man who was married to an Osage lady, um, Namitsehi, and she had three headrights at the time of her death in 1924 from tuberculosis. And he got one and a half. Okay. Yeah, it looks like she was in her 60s okay. and her husband was in his 30s. Really? And um, he inherited half of her estate. Uh -huh. So Ovi Pope has one and a half head rights. Okay. Her daughter, Rhoda Wheeler Ridge, has one and a half head rights. Okay. Ovi Pope's brother uh -huh. marries the daughter. Mm. And this is her divorce case, if you want to read. Starting there is where it explains it. So this is Pope v. Pope, Oklahoma, 1926. The ground alleged in the petition was extreme cruelty. On September 18, 1924, plaintiff filed an amended petition in which she alleged... Over pages and pages of testimony... Rhoda talks about the months before Namitsehi died, when Ovi Pope and his brother Troy packed up her things and moved her to Colorado. They kept her and her children in a house Troy Pope bought, even while her mother, who Ovi Pope was married to, was dying back in Osage County. In January 1924, Namitsehi died, and a little over four months later, as Rhoda was set to inherit half of her mother's estate, the two Pope brothers took her to the courthouse. Rhoda was forced to marry Troy Pope. I want you to hear some parts of Rhoda's testimony. And just to be clear, this divorce case is over 700 pages long. So this isn't all of it. But what it does show is textbook abusive behavior. Rhoda describes a relationship where she was isolated from her family and her finances where she was manipulated and coerced and physically and emotionally abused. It's tough to listen to, but I think it's important to hear. We've asked voice actors to read from the testimony. There's one moment when the lawyer asks Rhoda about her first husband, a man named King Ridge. They divorced just months before her mother died. Did O.V. Pope ever try to get you to get a divorce? Yes. He helped me lots of times, talked to me lots of times, and tried to get me to do it. I had to go ahead and do it. After that, the Pope brothers moved Rhoda to Colorado. Did you want to go to Colorado? No. He asked Rhoda if she wanted to marry Troy Pope. No. Why did you do that? Well, I was afraid. He might hurt me. Did he threaten to hurt you? Rhoda doesn't respond. What did he do? Again, no response. What made you afraid of him? Because they had a gun. Later, the lawyer tries to show the marriage is a sham. He drills down on the moment Rhoda was forced to say, I do. What did the preacher ask you? The preacher asked me to say I do. The preacher asked you to say I do? And how many times did he ask you that? He asked me three times. 
Did you want to say I do? No, sir. Why did you say it? Because I was afraid of them two boys. Rhoda tells the lawyer Troy was cruel to her and her children, that he whipped them. Did he ever slap you any? he done it four different times in Colorado. What caused that, Rhoda? Do you know? He gets mad because I don't give him money. Because you don't do what? Because I don't give him money. Did he ever twist your arm? He twists my arm two, three times like that. Did it hurt you? Yes, sir. What name did he call you? He, he just called me, called me names, everything. What would he say? Do you remember? Rhoda's silent. At another point, Rhoda says Troy wouldn't let her visit her mother when she was dying. She says she wanted to see her all the time. She never got to say goodbye. She had to find out Nomid say he died from a telegram that arrived at 3 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Within months, Ovi Pope was remarried. Rhoda says she was also sick during this time, and Troy refused to get her a doctor. Meanwhile, he's signing the back of her checks and cashing them for himself. Did he get some money from Ovi Pope from your mother's estate? Rhoda doesn't respond. Did he get $300 a month from your mother's money? Yes. In his testimony, Troy Pope denied that he abused Rhoda or that he and his brothers were taking her money for themselves. Ovi Pope testified that Rhoda wanted to go to Colorado. The lawyers didn't spend much time on his own marriage to Rhoda's mom or the fact that, by 1928, less than five years after Naumit Sehi died, Ovi Pope had sold the one and a half headrights he inherited from her for over $65,000 the equivalent of more than $1 million today. In total, three-fourths went to Jack Drummond, one-half went to another white man, and one-fourth went to an investment company. This divorce case goes beyond detailing the alleged abuse by the Pope brothers. It also paints the picture of an Osage woman who went to great lengths to protect her children. Rhoda enlisted the help of her uncle Jimmy to stand guard over her house, she hired lawyers to get restraining orders against Troy Pope. And in the end, she was successful and got away from the Pope brothers. She lived for another 40 years. She's buried in Hominy, next to her first husband, King Ridge. I've been in touch with Rhoda's descendants. They didn't know about this case, about the Pope brothers, or where these headright shares went. But over email, they gave me a sense of who Rhoda was outside of this case, because it didn't define her. They said she grew old on her allotment with King Ridge. She remarried him after her divorce from Troy Pope. Her five children grew to live long, full lives. They gave her grandchildren, whom she adored. 
She loved playing cards and board games and hosting everyone over the holidays. Rhoda was a humble, private person, they said. But most importantly, she was strong. Pope brothers never got any scrutiny outside of this divorce case, because despite all the evidence, the suspicious timing of it, in the middle of the reign of terror, what the Pope brothers did wasn't treated as anything criminal. As far as I can tell, the FBI didn't investigate. I never found anything published in the local paper about Namit Sehi's death or Rhoda's arranged marriage. No books, no movie. Another lost story of the reign of terror. Tara Dameron again. So this is exactly the type of schemes, crime, thefts. There's so much of this type of stuff that was just not looked into. Um, Obviously, Rhoda's mother was, what, in her 60s, and Ovi Pope was half her age. And this is just awful, and it's just disgusting. You know, we don't, because you hear stories, right? And you hear rumors and it's like, well, you know, we're pretty sure that so-and-so's got it. But then, then you see it in black and white, just like that list. And then it's, then it's real. Then it's, then it's, okay, I was right. We were right. I had also pulled the death certificate for Rhoda's mom, Namit Sehi. It said she died of chronic tuberculosis and heart failure. Ovi Pope was the one who provided all the family information for the death certificate. He apparently didn't know very much about the woman he married. Next to the space for her mother and father's names, it just says unknown. So, so yeah, she was married to him, mm-hmm. and then she died in 1924 yes. with a listed cause of death as tuberculosis. Yeah. Mm. Why'd you make that sound? Well, so, so so many Osages have a suspicious cause of death, especially during that time period, especially the 20s, the, the teens. Um, so we don't know if that's true or not, you know. Um, so we can't really trust the death certificate just because of the murders. And we know that they were cover-ups and that, you know, causes of death weren't investigated. You know, either poisoned whiskey or strychnine or doping or, I mean, just... None of that was none of that was investigated, you know. So she may have died of tuberculosis. I mean, because that you know that was a disease you know prevalent during that time. But I don't know. There was something else I brought Tara that day. It was a list, a small one, of non-Osage headright holders. Tara, of course, has seen a version of this list before, the one from that lawsuit that ended up in the newspaper. But the list I brought her. It had numbers. How many headrights, or headright fractions, some of these non-Osage groups owned. When the Bureau of Indian Affairs rejected my records request for this information, Bloomberg hired a law firm to fight it. We argued that the BIA didn't give a good reason for denying our request, that the exemptions they claimed didn't apply. And we were successful, kind of. Eventually, after a bunch of back and forth, we got something. 
some 70 names of non-Osage headright holders and how many they owned. Not the full list. The BIA withheld the names of non-Osage people who had headrights. But the organizations, family trusts, churches, oil companies, some of that we got. So I told you we were filing that FOIA. Um, I told you when we were filing the request. Yes, yeah. And you politely told me that I was probably not going to have much luck. And you're right. So the Bureau of Indian Affairs denied it. um, And then we appealed. Uh And they actually said that they were going to send a letter to every non-Osage headright holder and give them the chance to object to you look surprised. Oh my God. Wow. Really? Keep going. No. So um, they gave us a list of all the non-Osage entities that did not object to the release of this information. Really? So it's a start. Oh my gosh. On that list is Jack Drummond's trust. And right there, half a head right. It's worth noting, the list we got back from this FOIA is not even close to comprehensive. The BIA says about a fourth of all head rights are held by outsiders, something like 560 head rights. What we got back was just a small number of those, a fraction of non-Osage groups who didn't object when the BIA reached out because of our appeal. By my count, it's about 36 head rights represented in this list. So yeah. there's about 500 <laughs> that we don't know about. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, so, okay, so about roughly 36 head rights, right? So... I mean, just do the math in, like, the last 20 years, you know, or this past year, you know. Um, It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Since that initial list, the BIA has added a couple more names. So the latest version represents about 38 headrights. If you add up all the money those 38 headrights have paid out, just since the law was changed to stop more headrights from leaving Osage hands, the total comes out to more than $30 million. In Jack Drummond's trust, it may not have held the dozens of headrights that I had heard the Drummonds might have, but that half a headright, the one he bought from O.V. Pope, a white man whose Osage wife was twice his age and died during the reign of terror, who was accused of forcing her daughter to marry his own brother just as she was about to inherit the other half of her mother's estate. That half a headright was also a lot of money. Since 1925, when Jack bought it from O.V. Pope for the equivalent of $340,000 today, that half a headright has paid out $1.7 million when adjusted for inflation. It's just so hypocritical, I think. The Bureau knowingly approved the transaction or sale of Osage head rights to non-Osages and saw nothing wrong with that, you know, and kept it, kept it from us from all these years, you know, and that, that's the, the other thing is that they've, 
they've just been so protective. They're protecting people that it doesn't belong to, you know? I mean, and that's not their job. Because <laughs> these people aren't even Indian. They're not even Indian, you know, but they, they have Osage money or they have Indian money, you know, and it's, it just, it doesn't, it's not right. It's not okay. And it doesn't make sense. This comes up a lot in my conversations with Tara. She's always emphatic that this money belongs to the Osage Nation and its citizens. That even if there were legal ways for those head rights to be transferred out of Osage hands, that should have never been the case. That as long as the Osage mineral estate is around, it's meant to be benefiting Osage citizens, not the white people and oil companies and universities that have ended up with so many head rights. After the break, the Drummonds who have these shares today. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Okay, uh, just a second. I'm going to plug you in. Okay, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. This is Jim Drummond. He's a criminal defense attorney outside of Austin, Texas. His dad is Jack Drummond, the one from the tapes. Jack said he gave his half a head right to Jim in a trust. I called him after I learned the story behind Jack's head right shares. He didn't answer, but a few hours later, he called me back. I told him I was a reporter, that I was doing a podcast series. I asked if I could record our call. So you said that... Alfred Alexander Drummond was your father, right? Yes, he was my adoptive father. I okay. was adopted by my grandmother, my biological grandmother, and he was her second husband. They adopted me. Okay. Were you all close? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I talked to Jim for a few minutes. He told me he's read Jack's book. It turns out Jim was the one who asked Terry Hammonds to write it. He didn't know the interview tapes or his father's financial records were in a public archive. He never looked into it. Jim was guarded, said he didn't understand why Bloomberg News would be interested in this. But there was something he said before we started recording that I wanted to talk about. The first thing out of his mouth when he called me back. And and you mentioned, you said your first question was, is it about the, the Osage head rights? I'm just curious what, what you're there thinking. Was a contra- there was a controversy about that a number of years ago. You know, that uh, the Osage tribe was uh, looking to try to get some of the people who acquired head rights from the uh, tribal members and uh, that uh, they were hoping that the that people would voluntarily return them to the tribal ownership in some fashion. I was I didn't ever read the uh, the full story about that or the documents, but I was contacted by a trust which holds uh, an Osage head right that my father acquired. And um, they, I had no power to agree or disagree with that. The trust owns it, not me. 
But that's, oh, okay, uh, that's what I remember about this. What I remember about that. And are you a beneficiary of the trust? You just can't. I am. I am the beneficiary, but the, I have no control over the what we call the rest. I'm a lawyer. What we call the rest or the body of the trust is uh, it does not belong to me. You said that you had no ability as a beneficiary of the trust to give it back. That if, is if correct. You wanted to like was that something you wanted to do? You know, I'm just not aware of the. I, I didn't. I didn't. I decided not to formulate an opinion on that since I had no power to do anything. Uh, I can certainly see an argument that the Osage Nation made. I think they were exploited. Uh, there are probably a lot of my family members who would not agree with me on that. I tend to be more of a left-wing Democrat, and uh, they tend to be of the other persuasion, the redder persuasion. But uh, uh, I didn't. I've never made an issue of it. It's pointless to create a, to take sides in a controversy over which I have no power to have any effect. Interesting. Well, I, I would love to talk to you some more, um, and I would love to kind of show you some of the documents that I got from from the Alfred Drummond collection at the University of Central Oklahoma. Um, were oh, I yeah. in Houston uh, with my producer? Would would you be up for an in person meeting at some point if we came up to Austin? I go up a lot. Oh boy, I hate to. Here's the deal, you know. I mean, I don't. I just don't want to stir any controversy with anybody, and I don't really know a lot of my father's dealings. I mean, I was growing up. He was 52 when I was born, and you know, <laughs> I'm very, I'm very reluctant. Unless I, and you know, I know journalists don't like to show questions in advance, but unless I knew what questions. What, what you were going to delve into about those documents. I'm very reluctant to get involved. I, I, I belong to the Drummond family. I am a peripheral member, but nonetheless, I don't want to uh, create any problems or controversies for anyone. But any, any allegations of wrongdoing, I know zero about. I, I hear you. I, and I mean, I think... You mentioned that you think that the Osage Nation was exploited. I'm just like, I'm curious if well, you've ever had that's the their, question. That's their, that's, their point. that's their point of view. Right. And I understand, I understand that. Uh, I understand why they might have that point of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether, but, uh, but in terms of actually knowing any of the real details of, of who bought what and under what circumstances they bought it, that's a that's a, a wholly different issue of which I'm not qualified or informed enough to comment on. And frankly, I don't have the time to review a lot of those documents that you're referring to at Central State. Right, I'm a okay. busy, even though I am 73 years old, I am a busy criminal defense attorney. I have a major felony caseload. That's all I do is criminal yeah. defense. And I don't really... I have not only no interest in stirring up a pot, but I also have no no dog in that fight. I've talked to Jim several times since that first call about the headright transfer paperwork, the Pope brothers. I wanted to know whether it changed his perspective, knowing the story of this half a headright and the family it had belonged to. After that first conversation, Jim said he didn't want to be recorded, but he still took my calls. He told me that as far as he could tell, his father, Jack Drummond, hadn't done anything illegal or unethical to get this headright share. 
that if you average out what it paid over the last 97 years, it's actually a pretty modest return on what Jack initially bought it for. And Jim said he couldn't do anything about it anyway. He said he didn't have control of the trust, and he doesn't like forming opinions on things he can't change. I asked a trust attorney about this, by the way. Jim's right. He and the other beneficiaries could certainly ask the trustee, the bank or financial firm managing the trust, to give the headright share back to the Osage Nation. But the trustee has the final say. And if there are future beneficiaries, kids or grandkids who aren't even born yet, that makes it pretty difficult for the trustee to make any decisions like that. There is an exception. If someone sues over this half of a headright, an Osage family who says it was stolen from them or taken fraudulently, a court could order the trustee to give the share back to the family. But it's not only Jim who has those headright shares that Jack Drummond bought from O.V. Pope. There was that other quarter of a headright, and that share, over time, has ended up with a few other Drummonds. One of them is named Frederick Ford Drummond, but he goes by Ford. Hello. Hi, is this Ford? Yes. Hi, uh, my name is Rachel Adams. Ford wasn't super interested in talking to me the first time I called him. Yeah, I've, I'd rather not. I'm going to decline. But, okay. Um, is there sounds like an interesting story. Is there someone else in your family that you think... I was hoping Ford could give me another name. Someone on his side of the family I could talk to about this. He couldn't really think of anyone. He said the Drummond family at this point is really big, and no one person can really speak for everyone. He wished me good luck on the story. That was the last Ford and I talked, for a while at least. Until one day, when I was in Osage County, and I heard a rumor that made me call him back. Listen, I know you said you didn't want to talk, um, but I, I have one quick question for you, um, just because it's come up and I want to make sure that we uh, get get your take. Um, and as you know, I'm doing a podcast, so I'm recording all my calls. Um, but I, I heard a rumor mm-hmm. that you might be trying to give um, your head right share back to the tribe. That's correct. Um, I, my father had a one twelfth head right along with his two sisters. So um, a fourth of a head right, I guess they inherited from their dad, who I guess they got from his dad. I'm not sure. And you may know more about it than I do. But my dad passed away in 2020 and he left it to me. And I, along with my cousins, who both of my aunts passed away um, as well. So the, everyone is interested in giving the head right back to the tribe. Ford Drummond's dad had one-twelfth of a head right, part of the one-fourth that Ford's grandfather, Fred Gintner, bought from Jack, who bought it from O.V. Pope. Ford was set to inherit his head right share after his dad died in 2020, but he wanted to give it back to the Osage Nation, as did his cousins, who inherited the other part of that head right share. And I'm curious, like, why you decided to to try to do that? Well, the tribe has asked for him back, for one thing. And it's not, honestly, a lot of money um, involved. And it just seems like the right thing to do at this point. I mean, we, I think there's a lot more history coming up about, um, you know, the Killers of the Flower Moon movie and all those kind of things. 
I have no idea how we got this head right, and I'm not aware of anything nefarious or any wrongdoing or anything. Um, but yeah, I just think it's it seems like the right time and the right thing to do to just try to give it back to the tribe. But here's the thing. Ford said he and his cousins, they can't actually give their head right shares back to the tribe. They tried. But for some reason, federal law makes it practically impossible. You've probably learned it's difficult to do it just legally. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to get some type of legislative relief to allow that to happen. So, um, you know, we're just waiting to see when we can do it. But, yeah, that's that's my plan. And so is it the is the Bureau of Indian Affairs that doesn't really have a mechanism? I think if there's something the way the law is set up that you're supposed to try to find the original heirs of that head right, the descendants of that head right, and or portion of a head right. And as you probably have learned, head rights have been split up into, you know, very minute fractions across for descendants. So it's it's hard to do that. It's hard to track people down. And there's not really a good mechanism for just giving it back to the tribe itself. Oh, so so the idea is that you would actually find the Osage Alati whose head right share that originally was and give it back to the family instead of the tribe? You, I'm not sure. You'd probably be better off asking someone at the BIA. I mean, all I know about that is what I've, there's been a couple of news articles on it in local newspapers. Mm-hmm. And it is, there is, there's like a whole kind of uh, list of how you have, what you have to do to get it done. And which is just made, basically made it impossible to do it. Ford is the Drummond family member I mentioned in episode one, the one who's a citizen of the Choctaw Nation. He said his great-grandfather on his mother's side experienced the removal of the Choctaw Nation from Mississippi to their reservation in present-day Oklahoma. Ford said he's a product of both sides of Oklahoma's history, tribal removal and white settlement. And now he's set to inherit this fraction of a head right that was traced back to an Osage woman who died during the Reign of Terror, whose white husband was later accused of coercing her daughter to marry his brother, a man she said exhibited extreme cruelty against her. And Ford wants to give it back, but for some bureaucratic reason, he can't. Away, Dahi Nikshe, Nikapaki Zonzoli, Kishtomi Ahwatanka. My name is Everett Waller. I'm an Osage Indian from Hominy, Oklahoma. I uh, am now the seated chairman of the Osage Minerals Council. I went to meet Everett Waller because just a few weeks before, the Osage Minerals Council announced an effort to get the U.S. Congress to pass a bill that would make it easier for non Osage head right holders like Ford Drummond, to give their shares back to the Osage Nation. That should have never left my people's hands. Our trustees should not allow a item, whether it's monetary, whether it's land, whether it's our future, to be given out to someone else, because we administrate it. We, we pay for it. 
Everett and his fellow Minerals Council members are elected by Osage head right holders. They make decisions about how to develop all the oil and gas resources in Osage County. Everett's job is to represent Osage head right holders' interests. And a big part of that is getting back all the head rights held outside the nation. I looked at the 1906 Act as amended. In 84, it was said that you cannot give these head rights or sell them to non-Osages, which stopped the bleeding. But then the damage has already been done. When the first Osage original lottee died, any of their possessions should have been held in trust for the nation. I sat with Everett at a big table in a huge conference room in the Minerals Council building on the hill in Pahuska, where all the Osage government buildings are. On the wall is a mural of dozens of Osage citizens including members of Everett's family. Everett's pushing for this legislation to get head rights back, because even though the rules were changed in the 70s and 80s so that head rights could no longer be transferred to non-Osages, they didn't require any of the head rights that had already left Osage ownership to be returned. So right now, if a non-Osage person has a head right and they want to give it back to the Osage nation, can that happen? I, I don't want to say it can't happen. I just said it, it, we have seen a couple of issues before I was chairman that actually showed that there's not a proper methodology through the federal government to allow that. And I think that's done, as you well know, by some people in Washington that has not completed the requirements of taking care of the treaty rights to the Osage. So both Ford and Everett are saying the current process is so complicated and cumbersome that non-Osage head right holders are practically prohibited from returning their shares. That's what this new legislation would do, make that process easier. And it seems likely that legislation like this isn't going to be very controversial. We're talking about adding a legal mechanism for someone to voluntarily give something back to a tribal nation. Even with all the gridlock and polarization in government, it's hard to see anyone taking any major issues with that. And once this is all solved, Ford Drummond and his two cousins will give back their portion of that one-fourth of a head right, and Jim Drummond's trustee will hang on to his. As far as I can tell, the Drummonds had three-fourths of a head right. They bought it from a man named Ovi Pope, who inherited his shares from his wife, Namit Sehi, who died while the Pope brothers isolated, abused, and coerced her daughter into marrying Troy Pope. We only followed three-fourths of a head right, and we ran into the reign of terror. How many of the 500-plus other head rights held by non-Osages had a similar story? I get why the idea of the Drummonds having dozens of head rights got around. The Drummonds are a big name around Osage County. Some of them are rich and powerful. You can't walk through downtown Pahuska without running into one of the Drummonds' businesses. And across the different branches of the family, they own so much land, land their ancestors were able to buy pretty quickly. How was one family able to get so much? Thousands and thousands of acres by the 1930s especially since this was all owned by the Osage Nation in 1906. 
And sure, there's still a chance that there's a Drummond out there who holds more headrights under some other name. But after reading pages and pages of headright transfers and going through probate files and other legal documents from that time, this three-fourths of a headright is all that I could find. That's still a lot of money over the years, money that wasn't meant for them. I doubt when Osage leaders negotiated collective ownership of the mineral estate, they imagined parts of it would end up with a white family like the Drummonds. Certainly not like this. But the money the Drummond family did get from Headrights, it's not enough to build a ranching empire, not one like theirs, more than 130,000 acres across all the family members. The land the Drummonds own, thousands of acres of bluestem grass. It can graze cattle, serve as collateral for loans, build wealth over generations. By the time Jack Drummond bought that fraction of a headright in 1925, he and his two brothers already owned a lot of Osage land. And when I tried to find out how they did that, I saw something more subtle than the murders of the Reign of Terror, a system that the Drummond brothers and other white men in Osage County used to insert themselves into the finances of generations of Osage families, a system that helped build an empire. What started it all, next time on Intrust. In Trust is a production of Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. It's reported and hosted by me, Rachel Adams Hurd. This episode featured voice acting by Maura Redcorn and Yancey Redcorn. Special thanks to Bill Nunez. I'd also like to thank Veronica Redding at the Oklahoma Historical Society and the descendants of Rhoda Wheeler Ridge, who spent countless hours helping me tell her story. Additional reporting by Allison Herrera. Davis Land is our senior producer. Samantha Story is our executive producer. Jeff Grocott is our senior editor. Additional editing by Francesca Levy and Daniel Ferrara. Additional production by Victor Ivez. Production support from Gilda DeCarli. Sound engineering by Blake Maples. Fact-checking by Molly Nugent. Theme music by Laura Orman. Photography by Shane Brown. You can email us at podcasts at Bloomberg.net. Find more about this episode at Bloomberg.com slash Intrust. Find Intrust anywhere you get your podcasts. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.